Hello and welcome to another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, sitting here in our gorgeous Boston Public Library studio with my colleague Peter Kadza, senior editor at WGBH. Peter, hello. Hello, Adam. You should describe what it looks like here. Uh, I would... Uh, cavernous? Can I, tall? Cavernous is way too... Na- I, I'd say ethereal. Uh, uh, Very bright. Uh, ethereal, bright. Um, it's like, uh, I don't know, why don't we have our guest do that? And <laughs> that way we idea. get to yeah, let her, her talk. Brianna Wu, the video game developer, software engineer, engineer yes, tech analyst, and congressional candidate for the District 8 seat currently held by Congressman Stephen Lynch. That's it, that's it. Uh, Brianna, how would you describe our studios here? You know, it's kind of like Tron, but it's Journalism Tron, is how I would describe it with blue. Journalism with Tron, blue. okay. Yeah. That sounds so much cooler than anything I would I, come I wanted up to with. talk it up so people come down and watch you record. You're so. also dating yourself, though, yes. and me, because yes. I remember thinking that the Tron stand-up video game in the arcade was just the coolest thing. It's yeah. amazing. It's still great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Obviously, we are not here to take a trip down memory lane and talk about 1980s video games, though we're here to talk about your run for Congress uh, as a Democrat seeking to beat Stephen Lynch in the Democratic primary. Let me start by asking you about this quote that you offered a while back to the Boston Globe that got a lot of attention. You said of Steve Lynch, to me, Congressman Lynch represents everything I think is wrong with the Democratic Party. What were you talking about? Well, there's this pattern with Stephen Lynch, if you if you look at his record. And he'll start on the wrong side of an issue, and then when it becomes politically untenable, he will move to the other side of the issue. You know, a really good example is gay rights. Um, you know, he really started off um, with some really disturbing views about LGBT people. Such um, as? Well, the thing that really gets me is when he was in the State House here in Boston, he once tried to pass a bill uh, that would basically um, let people who committed hate crimes off the hook if they were found to have acted, quote-unquote, lasciviously. So, you the know, victim this was of the, the, the hate victim, crime? The victim of the hate crime. This was in the era, era when uh, you know, Gwen Arujo was murdered and uh, Matthew Shepard. You know, so this is. Um, I apologize, yes, Matthew Shepard. I know Gwen Aruko, I don't. This was a transgender woman that was basically um, she was murdered. She uh, by some men she was with, and um, they found out she was a transgender woman and murdered her. And uh, the people there uh, employed a gay panic defense, and got off on some very mild charges afterwards. And. Unfortunately, you know, this is the kind of bill that Stephen Lynch was putting forward. Wasn't, and I may be wrong here, I, I had not known that piece of legislative history sure. on the part of, of Steve Lynch. Was he in Congress at the time of Matthew Shepard's murder? No, that was uh, later. I'm talking about the era itself, because I grew up in this era, you know, for me as a, a queer woman, right? Like, there was a real fear that your life didn't matter in that era. So, you know, I take that very personally when Stephen Lynch is doing that. But the, the wider pattern here is, you know, then Stephen Lynch moves and he says, well, you know, I'm okay with gay people. And he starts voting, you know, along with the party. And he does it with financial interests. You know, he does it with women's uh, reproductive health. But he's somebody that doesn't really take the lead when there's something that needs to be done. I would say someone that I think represents everything that's right in, um, you know, you know, not the U.S. House, but the Senate, is Elizabeth Warren. You know, she's really leading the way on banking finance reform. I don't see that same kind of leadership from Stephen Lynch. I see him more going along to get along. But 
What's wrong with a more conservative Democrat showing signs of personal growth? Sure. Well, I think there's a difference in um, just voting when someone else brings a bill to the floor uh, versus bringing leadership yourself, like spearheading bills, really pushing this legislation through. You know, for myself, when I was 23, you know, I was voting as a Republican back then. Uh, You know, I've actually worked for the Republicans in D.C. before. So I, I don't. I don't, I think my problem with Stephen Lynch is his positions don't seem genuine to me. But why yeah. Why couldn't the same be said for you? Now, I'm not questioning sure. um, the authenticity of where you are today, sure. but for someone who once um, supported Trent Lott, yeah. um, to me, it doesn't seem to be a world of difference of someone who's moved from the hard right, sure. as as you might have as a, a very young person, yeah. um, to the left, to someone who's moved from the 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 the, the just center right. Sure, I, I don't see a world of difference there. I'm really surprised that you can't. Just to be honest, you know, I grew up in Mississippi. I went to church three times a week. I, um, you know, I went to a, a hyper uh, private Christian school up until 10th grade. Um, I had never really even spent time around people that were different than me until I was in 11th grade. So, you know, for me, going out into the real world and kind of going, oh, maybe the world is a little bit more complicated than Rush Limbaugh said by 23 years old. I think that's a, a pretty quick way well, to change yourself. I, yeah. I guess my surprise comes from you, you're denying uh, Congressman Lynch sure. the, the, the right to make that same sort of journey. It's not... See, I think there are two ways you can look at this here, right? There's the personal... I don't know Stephen Lynch personally, so I can't judge what's in his sure. heart. But I can judge his legislative record and his leadership there. So it just seems to me that when one of these old positions on gay rights or women's issues becomes politically untenable, he kind of switches sides, and he says what he has to say, but I don't see true leadership on those issues. If you look at my history of fighting Gamergate, you know, I have put it all on the field for women in tech at huge personal cost for me. And I think any woman out there in District 8 that's looking to vote for me she knows where I will stand on her reproductive rights. To me, personally, I read that as more lip service, and I don't see progress being made. You know, that's my position, and I think voters can make up their own mind, though. I wanted to ask you about Ga- yeah. Gamergate. You beat me to it. <laughs> can you offer... I remember listening to a program dedicated to explaining Gamergate cool. to those of us who were coming late to it, and I sure. remember having so much trouble getting a handle on what was going on despite sure. my fervent desire to because I felt as the, the narrative of Gamergate was recounted like I had stepped into someone's fever dream. <laughs> yes. the, the logic was so bizarre. Uh, it, it was all so surreal. Before I ask you about what Gamergate does for you as a asset to your political biography. Sure. Can you offer the, the, the most, you know, when, when you run into someone who doesn't know what it is, how do you describe it well, to it's, them? It's hard to describe, right? Because yeah. it's such a ridiculous thing. Long story short, Gamergate was the prototype alt-right. You know, so when we look at the alt-right and Steve Bannon in the White House, Gamergate was the, case, the test case for this. So um, 
I think people that look at the alt-right, they can see it kind of ties into these cultural issues that, you know, um, white men particularly key into. So it's basically a social backlash that started in the game industry because more women are starting to work there, more queer people are starting to work there, more black people are starting to work in the game industry. As a result of that, the game industry is changing a lot. And there are some gamers in that space that really don't like that. They like their women represented as bikini-wearing sex symbols. And, you know, when we're talking about games expanding for the rest of us, they feel like they're losing their identity. You know, go to PAX East here in Boston, you will see how fiercely many gamers base their identity in video games, like who they are. Um, You know, I'm one of them to a certain extent. So... It was basically a group of men that felt like their culture was being taken away, and they started sending death threats. They started sending rape threats. They started um, harassment campaigns against many women in our field, myself included. Um, you know, there's no good way to have a Law & Order episode made about you, but I did, right? It was and this all the, played out on Twitter. It did, on Twitter, Andrea Life, and with the FBI, and with Homeland Security mm-hmm. here in Boston, and with district um, attorneys here in Boston. So it was a real mess. And my thing from the beginning is I just wanted someone that threatened me to be prosecuted. I wanted there to be consequences for that. I did everything right. I hired someone at my studio to investigate the people sending me death threats. I worked with law enforcement. I did hundreds upon hundreds of media interviews. At the end of the day, we found out the law enforcement system utterly failed me and other women. So it's um, so it's, no one was prosecuted. No for one the was threats prosecuted. You know, just like with the alt right, you know, we see this really frenzied um, version of the right wing now that will show up to a pizzeria with an assault rifle. You're talking about uh, uh, ping pong. I mean, yeah. what's the name? Co- uh, Cosmic Pizza, ping pong. Whatever or, yeah, it was. yeah. Thank yeah. you. So when you say on your campaign website yes. that you fought the alt right and won, yeah. and you're you're talking there, I think about. The, the Gamergate people who you mentioned earlier, the, the people issuing these misogynistic threats yeah. uh, and, and waxing apoplectic about ceding this cultural space or yeah. you know, their, their belief that they were ceding this cultural space. Um, so you're, you're talking about them and the alt-right as being basically one and the same. I see them as synonymous, Okay. Yes. Um, what is the outcome beyond survival, or maybe it is just survival and getting through this personally that, that leads you to conclude that you beat the alt-right there? Well, I think um, I would say with that statement, this is something that I was uh, working on with my website, and just to be really honest with you, I forgot that I had friends on my Facebook that were journalists in a particular group, and uh, Dean over at VentureBeat saw that, and the story spun out of control, including that. Um, Wait, which piece of the story? The, the She fought the alt-right and won. Oh, okay, because the only yeah. reason I know about it is because I was looking at your site exactly. before our conversation. No, it's right so. there, and then so many people wrote about I I had to keep it up. Um, look, the all right is out there. It's important. It's, it's, it's devastating. What I was successful in doing is drawing a line in the sand for professional women everywhere. And I get letters from them every single day about, you know, people appreciating that I stood up, I spoke my mind, I didn't, you know, sit down. And, you know, I'm out there advocating for professional women in the tech industry. This is a brutal field for women. You know, I could spend five hours talking about all the ways tech is horrible to women. 
Um, Have you know, seen the new Atlantic issue? I think it's on exactly I'm, that Tracy topic. Tracy is a friend of mine who was on the cover. So, um, yeah, I saw that, and that story was just getting into the surface of it. So, yeah, um, that's what I meant by that. I think this is... I think women want to have careers in technology the same way men are able to have you know, careers in technology. And this, by the way, it really mirrors what happened in journalism in the 50s and 60s. You know, if you look at the Barbara Walters era, she got involved in journalism back you know, when Anchorman, the movie, was the reality of being a journalist. And you look at how many more women are working in your newsroom when I go down there these days. So there needs to be a similar shift in the technology industry. Would you be running for Congress if you had not experienced what you did vis-a-vis Gamergate? I don't know. Um, I always suspected I would move back to politics at some point. You know, there's a reason it was my first job out of college. What was that first job? Uh, I was working for the Republicans, believe it or not, in D.C. So So you thought you'd get back to it eventually? I I expected to eventually. Um, But, you know, Gamergate really taught me that I am stronger than I thought I was. It really makes you fear nothing. Like when you've... You know, when you get death threats on a daily basis and you push through and you stand your ground, there's really not much that scares you after that. Were you leery at all that by hopping into this very high-profile campaign that you would reactivate or that that it would be a catalyst for a resurgence in the kind of stuff that you had to weather in Gamergate? I knew it would be, and it has been. It has been? Yeah. Well, 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 let me ask. I mean, the the, the, um, the 8th Congressional District is the most Irish Catholic in the nation. Yes. And while Adam and I are fascinated with Gamergate, (laughs) my hunch is that 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 issue is going to be of limited utility. It'll be of utility because the whole issue of of, uh, uh, women's rights will resonate. But how do you plan to make a cultural connection, which what is a... Um, you know, by Massachusetts standards, a, a conservative Democratic yeah. district. Yeah. Um, by national standards, you know, it, it, it's still probably close to socialism. Yeah. But but locally, it's a, a, a blue district tinged with red. Can I thank you so much for asking me this? Because no one ever asks me this. You know, I grew up in Mississippi, which is the poorest state in America. And, you know, it is, when you're talking about blue-collar people that get up and go do union jobs, like, you know, blue-collar work, this is where I grew up. This is the culture I grew up in. So when I'm out there in District 8 talking to voters, these are my people. You know what, do you know what I did this weekend? I have a classic car that I am working on repairing. I spent most of this weekend up under my car trying to rewire my electrical system. That's not something that most people in Congress are interested in doing. So, yeah, what you do is you talk to them about the economics of what they're dealing with in their lives, which are atrocious. You talk about the way that vast parts of District 8 are completely left behind you know, with education and the economic development and prosperity that Boston enjoys. So you start talking to that and speaking to that about all the economic growth we need out there in District 8, what, and people's what, eyes light up. Now, what, what, what are the areas of District 8? Um, 
th th that you think are most left behind? I'll just keep it simple. I think denim is an area that I, I, I would say that's a bigger priority to me than, say, JP, right? Um, I, I think it's pretty much that eastern area of Massachusetts. Like, you can go out there, and it's older homes. But, yeah, I was in a school district there the other day. And I'm looking at the, the computer systems they have there. It's the same uh, computer systems I was using in the 90s when I was in high school. So, yeah, I think um, we've got to really look at the economic structure out there in District 8 and ask why the tax base is so much less. All right. To my mind, yeah. Dedham is a pretty affluent suburb, sure. right? Yeah. So whether or not their computer hardware is au courant, I, that is a place that I think of. And I'm a transplant to Massachusetts. Sure. I've, I've lived here just over 20 years now. You're my, a professional uh, transplant. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Highlight of my week. We should just shut it down right now. <laughs> my hunch is that there are going to be listeners who know the state better than I do who are going right. to think, wait a minute, Brianna Wu just said that Dedham is a community that's getting I'm a talking, short shrift? I'm so, talking all out there in you know, eastern Massachusetts, right? So, well, that's, can you be more specific? Sure, Woburn, I think that's really, um, it needs a lot of help out there. I was over there the other day for the um, um, Democratic uh, National the Democratic uh, primary, like I was out there talking to voters out there. So, you know, it's there's a lot of work out there that needs to be done. You were just talking about the way that you can connect with voters. I think so. In the 8th Congressional District. Yep. And maybe I listened because I knew I wanted to ask some variant of the question I'm about to ask. But as sure. you were talking about how you were connecting with them, it sounded to me like what I heard Bernie Sanders say when I saw him speak at Emerson College a couple yeah. days after Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton, talking about this need to focus on economic issues yeah. and economic inequities and to give, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it's an accurate paraphrase, to give a, a secondary role or assign yeah. secondary importance to issues of culture and <laughs> identity. Yes. But of course, I know that you've also criticized Stephen Lynch for saying that we should move away from identity politics. So Actually, I agree. The Boston, uh, uh, I had a, what was it? It was, um, it was some Boston um, journalist, Boston Commonwealth. He did a piece on profile on Stephen Lynch, asked me if I disagreed with that quote. I said I agree with it to a certain point. Okay, so tell me, hear me Hear me out here. You know, I supported Hillary Clinton. I was all in on Hillary Clinton for the, the election. I went out there. I campaigned for her. I wrote op-eds for her. I worked with helping getting her message out there. I was all in on her. But what I realized in the aftermath of Trump is that the Hillary Clinton playbook is causing us to lose because we got our butts kicked nationwide. And what do you mean by Hillary Clinton playbook? I mean this kind of... I'm just, I'm really got to be honest with you here. We're in Boston right now. There are, what, 106 colleges here in Boston? We are a hyper-educated city. But if you get out there into the rest of the country, I think there is a, a hyper-educated, kind of elitist, almost snobbish um, undercurrent to the Democratic Party that I think is tremendously counterproductive. Now, I'm not talking about not pushing back on racism or sexism or homophobia when we see it. But what I am talking about is looking down your nose at somebody because they like NASCAR or if they grew up in a trailer or if their family happens to do blue-collar work. There's a certain sense 
within many in the Democratic Party, that's just not what we're about. I'll give you an example. There was somebody I worked with at my company, and I ended up parting ways with him over this, that um, you know, this is someone who went to Harvard, background in marketing. They came over to my house, and they saw me underneath my car changing my own oil. And they looked at me with disgust in their eyes. And they asked me, like, why on earth are you doing that? You are a head of development at your studio. Like, why don't you take that over there? It's like everybody, this is pride for me to be able to do this. There's this technocratic, elitist strain to the Democratic Party that is making us really fail to connect with normal people out there, just everyday voters, everyday Americans. And we have got to get down and address their needs very directly. Just one second. Now, with the identity politics part of this, this is where, with all respect to Bernie Sanders, he is a white, straight man. And there's a limit to how much he can understand this. By the way, I should note, as am I, so just point taken. So I'm going to say this with all respect, but there is a a disconnect that white, straight men have with whites like to be a queer person, with whites like to be a woman in this country. So by minimizing those issues, you're really telling women all across the country that our concerns don't matter. And when you see things like reproductive health care being dismantled, uh, you know, in this country, I will very proudly stand up to that. So these two things are not mutually exclusive. We need to say, look, the lived experience of women needs to be forefront in politics. You know, when I'm in Congress, I'm going to be able to speak about reproductive health care and advocate for that in a way that I think a straight white man cannot. At the same time, we've got to go out there and really message with normal Americans. Let's talk about infrastructure Mm -hmm. in in Trump's um, extremely muddled plan for moving this forward. Um, Do you think Democrats in Congress um, should work with the Trump administration on an infrastructure plan, or do you think that um, people in Congress... Uh, Democrats should just oppose Trump on everything. No, he does. of course not. Um, you know, something you know as a software engineer is engineering is all about compromising. So, when I'm developing a piece of software, you put you have certain things that you say you cannot go with, but it's all about compromising. That's what engineering is all about. So, with things like infrastructure, we desperately need infrastructure jobs out there in District Eight. Something the media, with all respect to you guys, does not talk about enough is climate change here in Boston. I've seen data recently that makes me fairly terrified that Boston could be underwater with rising sea level in 100 years. Well, I'm not sure why we're building the seaport the way we're building the seaport. I agree. I agree. So, you know, when we're talking about infrastructure, I will never fault a Democrat for going out there and working to secure jobs and money for people in District 8. In fact, that's my whole idea. Like, I want to start working on those industries out in our district. So, no, I have no issue with that. One thing that you have suggested, which uh, I want to learn more about, but it seems like it could create a tension when it comes to working with the Trump administration on infrastructure, is this idea that we should, in some way, as a state, indicate our resistance to the Trump agenda by, do I understand correctly, withholding our federal tax contribution as a state? Because you make the point on your campaign website that we give more than we get back. We're a donor state, And you say that we are, therefore, in a position of strength when it comes to negotiating. So exactly 
what sort of negotiation could you see ensuing from us being a donor state? And could you imagine, given the nature of this administration, some sort of retribution as a consequence, which if we roll out a big, shiny new infrastructure revamp nationwide, maybe Massachusetts doesn't get it because we've tried to play hardball with our federal taxes. Yeah. So this is a great question. Thank you. And so let me, this is where my lived perspective of growing up in the poorest state in America comes in. So let me tell you what it's like in Mississippi. You have some real conservative extremist politicians that run that state, and they refuse to pay taxes. So they've got this game that I saw while I worked for the Republican Party, where we would bring in all these federal dollars to our state to pay for our police departments, to pay for our roads, to pay for our schools. You know, Mississippians don't pay for that. It's the rest of the country that pays for that. Yet, you know, Mississippi is never going to get ahead until they start taxing their own citizens enough to, like, build decent schools there, because the schools in Mississippi are atrocious. And I think we've got to break this cycle where we have one rabid party that's saying we've got to slash all of our infrastructure, our education, our public radio, our you know, roads, um, everything. And then, you know, it's up to states like Massachusetts. Like, District 8 is out there. They are being, these are families that don't need to be giving money to pay for the schools in Mississippi. They need to be building but up their how own could, schools. How yeah. could that work in practice? I mean, what could Massachusetts do on a real fundamental structural level to keep more of our tax dollars yeah, here? Yeah, and not, not, not to gang up, but to sure. add an aspect to that question. Yeah. The money is taken out of everyone's paycheck right. every week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, I'm not talking about the big corporate taxes and things like that, but yes, you can adjust your withholdings and stuff, sure. but it, 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 it just strikes me as a fantasy. I just don't see how you affect it. So that's a great question. So I would agree with you if it was just Brianna Wu running, but if you listen to my messaging, you know, I'm working with brand new Congress. You know, I'm actually, I got an email from Justice Democrats, which is the Young Turks. They're looking to run all new candidates there. So what we are looking to do, I agree, like solo, there's a very limited amount to what we can get done. I probably shouldn't say this on the air, but I will say it anyway. The longer, the more I get into the work of running for Congress, the more I see how the Democratic Party is part of this broken system. And there is this kind of short-term gain. And I think we've got to start working with bigger ideas there. So I do want to work with other representatives. I want a new generation of Congress people that will get in there and will be more aggressive on federal funding. What's the mechanism for making that goal of yours a reality? Because sure. I'm still confused. Okay, no, that's fine. Look. I, by the way, don't buy it, but maybe you'll convince me. You know, so part of this is like I'm coming from an engineering background, right? I'm coming from the venture capital world. I'm coming from you decide to do something, you get in there, and you figure out how to do it along the way. So I want to tell you, as far as being a technocrat, a <laughs> Washington insider that really can sit down and do this, um, that has a lot of experience at this, Maybe you're right. Maybe I'll go there and I'll find out that it absolutely cannot be done. But I do think it's very true that Massachusetts is a donor state. And I realize that some of this is like, you know, the way the appropriations committee works. Like they go through there and they get the master budget and the way it goes out there. I could completely fail at this. But I want to say, like, going into this job, that is absolutely my mission objective is to negotiate for that harder. 
Okay, I'm still a little confused, but we should probably move on. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine the the mechanism by which it would happen. As Peter pointed out, you know, everyone's getting their taxes withheld. We all file our federal income tax so returns. Let's so, talk about the budgeting process in Washington. Right, but you've talked about keeping our tax dollars in Massachusetts. I'm talking about getting a greater part of the... Maybe this is where we're not communicating. I'm yeah, this, about I, getting, think, I think we're getting there. I'm talking about getting... Okay, one of the things I want to do in District 8 is you, know, you have a lot of union people that are underemployed out there, right? I would like clean energy, technology, and jobs... That is made for Massachusetts. Hyper-educated workforce, we get it, and you need like people to start building this infrastructure. I would love to fight and advocate to have those jobs right here in Massachusetts. So when we're talking about starting to figure out technology to like stop the sea level from rising, and by the way, some of the technology I've seen is like, it's everything from nanomachines that can go out there and put different chemicals out there to like um, abate the effects of global warming to like dumb solutions like giant cement walls to just break up giant hurricanes going inland. This is a ton of infrastructure that we need to be building on the coast because that's where it's going to be targeted. So I'm talking about getting more federal appropriated construction jobs. You are talking, and I use this not in a pejorative sense, about getting more pork for Massachusetts. Got it. All right. Yes. Thank you for, for bearing with me. <laughs> Can I tell I, you I something as an engineer? You always leap to the most complicated part of the solution in your brain. It's just the way we think. So. Peter Kadzis, I think I saw you wanting to ask a question. Well, yeah. One, <coughs> we have to keep an eye on the clock. We do. But, but, but what are, say, two of the, the new ideas that yes. you and your fellow young Turks would, would like <laughs> to import yes. into Washington, D.C., at least into the Democratic side of Washington, D.C. Two radical new ideas that we haven't talked about yet. Well, I think universal basic income is something we've got to talk about. Yeah, the last time... That's a big one. Well, so I know this is something... This is an example of the two-party system. It just looks at it and goes, can't be done. But I have to tell you guys, again, this is coming from my experience in Silicon Valley. Like, I go out there... And I see the next wave of automation and robots that are coming from friends that are developing this stuff. And guys, I want to tell you, you are going to be shocked at where we are a decade from now with what's going on with delivery jobs, with food preparation jobs. She read my article. I'm sorry? (laughs) An inside joke with Adam. No, I recently wrote a piece about joblessness. Yeah is the, 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 the silent scourge afflicting America it's, it's that going, no, one, yeah. no one is wrecking. It you're is, saying it's going to get a lot, lot it's worse. It's going to get so much worse in the next decade, guys. Like, and I, There are obvious things, like Uber is working to automate their workforce with self-driving cars, and I'm telling you, a decade from now, I don't know if delivery jobs are still going to be here. No, the, t- so, tell us how yes. the, the, the annual income would work briefly, because that's an idea that I don't think most people are aware of. So the idea is a guaranteed uh, universal basic income. So the the idea that I like is if, um, let's say um, Jane drives a truck for a living, okay? She's in District 8, and a truck comes along, and um, they automate it, and they put an automated system in there, and Jane loses her job. The way I would start uh, implementing UBI would be I would tax the robot that takes Jane's job. And then I would start having that robot pay into, you know, Social Security, Medicare. Hmm. I would, like, have that start paying into the system. 
and what that will do is it will have two things. Like long term, we will have, as automation takes over more jobs, we'll have a tax base. But it will also slow the, the onset of automation and allow more people, you know, a chance to move to other industries, to go now, back now, to school. Yes. I know that that's an intellectually defensible idea. Yes. And economically, it is not crazy. However, this is a political campaign. How do you respond to an attack ad that could come out at you that's saying, you know, this woman's idea of, 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 of helping the downtrodden is to tax robots? <laughs> that's the problem you run into, right? Like you talk about big ideas and uh, they find, they find uh, sound bites to go after you. I have no doubt that will happen. Um, but, you know, something you're going to see from me is I'm going to be very open and honest. I'm not going to be hyper-messaged, and, you know, like, well, I will keep doing it. One more, then, yeah. just to move us along. Wait, I have you to push said, back on you on that, though. Like, what am I supposed okay. to do? Not talk about big ideas? No, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to present sure. a, a real-life problem. But you mentioned guaranteed yeah. annual income um, for people. What would be just the second big idea? Second just big another, idea? Yeah. Well, it's got to be renewable energy, right? Like, we've okay. absolutely got to go all in on... This is an American security issue more than anything. Like, guys, like, you look at why we're so entangled in the Middle East and have been for far beyond before I was alive. You know, the truth is, like, with climate change, oil is destroying this planet. And the thing is, I think people don't understand this On in China... They're all in on renewable energy. They are surpassing the United States at this at a very fast rate. I seem to recall China yeah. up and grabbing a solar energy company from Massachusetts a couple oh, really? years back. If, if memory serves. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the Chinese solar industry has basically eaten America's yeah. right. you know, stuff. Or, so, you know, on top of that, We've got to start working on developing our own renewable energy technology because, like, oil is not going to last forever. And if, if it did, it would destroy the planet. So there's a lot of jobs and infrastructure that can be created here. Like, with climate change, it's terrifying. It's scary. I have to tell you guys, like, as I'm out there looking at some of the research and working on my policy for this stuff, it scares me. It keeps me up at night, some of the stuff I see. At the same time is a crisis, but is also an opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to really rethink the economy. It's a chance for us to build infrastructure. It's a chance for the United States to lead the world in clean energy jobs. I'm hoping that we can wrap up on another policy question. I know yeah. one of the things that you've said you'd really like to tackle in Congress is the passage of an omnibus privacy oh, thank you. bill. Yes. So what would you like to see happen on that front? So this is one of the rare things where Republicans and Democrats completely agree if they're engineers, if they're engineers. So what you're going to see from me in the next few weeks is working to put together a group of engineers to take over the subcommittee of technology in the House. I want to get a lot of engineers to run for Congress and to try to get on this committee to start working on things like cybersecurity, privacy, encryption, um, net neutrality. This is stuff, and I realize it's not a big deal for... I realize it's not something that's going to drive people in District 8 out to the polls, 
But guys, this is so important. Like there's a bill the Republicans are trying to fast track through right now that will allow your internet service provider to just pass off everything that you surf off for marketing purposes, which is a huge violation of your privacy. This is not a problem that can be solved with the free market because neither the buyer nor the seller are incentivized to do this. The buyer wants to spend less money. The seller wants to collect as much data as right. possible and sell it. Government regulation is the only thing that can solve our privacy problem. And amazingly, Republicans and Democrats, I know so many conservative engineers, and we are like peas in a pod on this. I should note that you're holding yeah, up your fingers and crossing them there, I intertwined am. as you make that point. We have got to, our tech policy in the United States is so dumb, guys. It is so terrible. In ways, I could, I would lose your listeners from getting into technical speak, but it is, we are so vulnerable in cybersecurity. Well, thank you, yes. Brianna Wu. Ordinarily, we don't get quite this uh, down in the, the dirt with yes. policy proposals, yes. I don't think. I would so, say granular. Gra- I like that. Granular sounds much more highbrow. Uh, Brianna Wu, video game developer, software engineer, tech analyst, and Democratic candidate for Congress in District 8. Thank you for coming in to the BPL to talk with us. And I hope you'll come back later in the campaign. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. All right, good luck. And thanks to all our listeners for checking out this latest installment of The Scrum. As always, you can find us on iTunes, where you should subscribe if you haven't already. We'd also love it if you would leave even some faint praise for us. Uh, although fulsome praise is better. You can also find us online at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum and on the various podcatchers that are kicking around out there. Our producer is Jason Tereski. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.